Hello and welcome to the Talking Techniques podcast. Brought to you by Biotechniques, this show brings you the latest from the frontiers of the life sciences, straight from the people exploring them. I'm Tristan Free, Senior Editor of Biotechniques and your host for this second special episode recorded at SFN 2022 in San Diego. My guest for this episode is the enigmatic Tim Harris, the man behind the invention of NeuroPixels, neural recording probes inserted into the brains of animal models which allow researchers to collect signals from hundreds of individual neurons in different brain regions simultaneously over extended periods of time. The aim of these probes is to allow researchers to investigate the connectivity of different brain regions to find out how they work in concert to process information and accomplish tasks. Now, this was recorded just outside the convention centre, overlooking the docks where the US Navy were going about their business. So listen out for the occasional Black Hawk in the background, zooming past and rudely interrupting our podcast. So listen on to hear Tim tell us the story behind the invention of NeuroPixels. And then I took that specification around to technology developers and said, you know, we want, it, we want a thing that does this. Can you make it? Fortunately, I found IMAC, Life Science Applications, and so they worked through, they're very good engineers, they worked through the spec and they said, sure, we can do this, 4.2 million euros. Okay. <laughs> I thought, okay. <laughs> How they've impacted data collection for neuroscience studies. They recorded in one session, in one day, all of the data that went into a paper published two years ago that took two years to accumulate with the prior art. And the debate they have created surrounding the applicability of huge data sets that average data points from thousands of neurons. Michael Shadlin is worried that we're simply gonna drown the real signal in large volumes of available data and the kinds of analysis that are required to really extract science require you to understand that an, an average across 10,000 neurons is likely not an informative outcome. And so that's going to be an argument that's going to play out over the next few years in neuroscience. I worry that I'm busy pouring gasoline on that fire. So on with the podcast. Tim, it's, uh, it's great to see you. Thank you for joining me. It's great to be here. And, and uh, I, I hope we can create an informative session here. Now, so, so first off, um, please, could you introduce yourself and your institution? Yes, so I'm Tim Harris, um, and I have two positions, one at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute Genelia Research Campus. I am also a part-time research professor in biomedical engineering at Johns Hopkins University. And I have been for since 2008 uh, in the field of tools for, uh, for neuroscience. And most um, recently I've concentrated in electrophysiology and I am the originator of the project which, which produced the neural pixels probe and all of its variants. Fantastic. And can you tell us about the um, what was the symposium that you were just presiding over? So we organized a symposium to um, showcase the capabilities of a probe like NeuroPixels. It's not the only one that will have it. Going forward, there are going to be a couple of others. It's certainly the first. And that is high channel count probes with dense recording sites. High channel counts just give you coverage. You get more tissue... At, at simultaneously in time synchrony, you're getting sub-millisecond time resolution, and the, the, the recording electrodes are close enough together that you can resolve individual neurons far better than you could with prior art. So if you don't have capacity, you can't do density without really restricting the tissue coverage. So if you want density, you've got to have capacity, or otherwise you're looking at a tiny piece of neural tissue. 
Okay. And um, what do you think of some of the key takeaways from your uh, uh, from that symposium? Let's let's let the Navy finish asking yeah, us yes. about it first. So I think that that the first and clearest one is that the scale of data has become really large. I mean, there were two reports of many tens of thousands of neurons in a single study. Um, one of several hundred thousand neurons in a single study. And so that scale is simply outside of, of neuroscience's experience. I have frequently argued without serious data behind me that neuropixels, since they first became available in 2018, have created more electrophysiology data than the entire history of electrophysiology. Um, and I think that's likely true, just because there's so much, I mean, it's an order of magnitude plus, and they're really easy to use. I mean, you get data within minutes of putting them in, unlike, you know, Tetra drives where it takes, you know, two weeks or three weeks of adjusting to get them where you want them. And so the, the, the throughput advantage is, is really a big step. The second thing is, is you get to ask questions you didn't used to ask, like what happened on that trial? Single trial capability is, is, requires lots of neurons in one recording. And so large channel counts and high-density probes give you the capability to do that if, if the conditions are right. I mean, it has to be the right, the right tissue that's capable of, but, but it, it increases by a very large amount your ability to do single trial analysis. That's really important because, because analysis averaged or, you know, recording averaged over trials obscures lots of important scientific questions. And so, and the third thing is, is that, is that, um, it's a step change in technology that's going to require an adjustment. Like, well, Edvard Moser was arguing it's like when um, David Hubel invented the sharpened tungsten electrode in that 1957 paper, which you should read. Mm -hmm. It is amazingly cool. Okay. He also worked at Johns Hopkins. That, that work was done there. Is that there was this big flurry of discoveries in neuroscience just based on the availability of that technology, and it's and it's wide, you know, where homemade anybody could make them, and so neuropixels aren't homemade, but but anybody can afford them, and so Edvard argues we're going to see a big burst in neuroscience discoveries as a result of this new technology capability. I hope he's right. Yeah. Fingers <laughs> crossed. Um, well, I, I, I one more comment. Oh, sorry. Well, one more comment is is that is that Michael Shadlin is worried that we're simply going to drown the real signal in large volumes of available data, and the kinds of analysis that are required to really extract science require you to understand that an, an average across ten thousand neurons is likely not an informative outcome. It's a bit subtle for me to quite see where people are going wrong or right, but I've seen people do these 10,000 neurons tell us the six things, and he profoundly disagrees. And so that's going to be an argument that's going to play out over the next few years in neuroscience. I worry that I'm busy pouring gasoline on that fire because I simply keep increasing the capacity of recording, which allows you to do these, I'm going to find out all the information in 10,000 signals. When, when Michael argues it's information in 20 signals diluted with 9,980 signals. Okay, so um, electrophysiology is clearly in a bit of a boom at the moment. Could you tell us a bit more about um, what neuropixels are uh, and some of the other techniques okay. that are driving forward the, um, the field at the moment? 
So I, I, I came to neuroscience in 2008 knowing no more than you learn in the gossip pages of journals because I didn't read the primary neuroscience literature and I learned it at Genalia when I got there in September of 2008. And very quickly on, people came to me and said, there are these things called silicon probes and they typically have four or eight channels on a shank and it's not enough to do what we need. So I looked at the technology that was being used to fabricate them and realized it was legacy technology from the 70s, literally. Fabrication that was, the, the fabrication tools that were being used to make those devices in 2008 and 9 and 10 was the same. And I thought, gosh, we can do better than this. There are, and so I didn't do anything except for replace 40-year-old technology with 25-year-old technology. N not not a thoughtful exercise simply you can do a little better if you just buy you know if you just go to the place that has the newer tools and so it took some development to, to learn how to make them but we we did and those probes were 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 used all over HHMI and then eventually licensed to Cambridge Neurotech for sale and so Cambridge Neurotech probes are the ones that I developed in my lab it was, however, obvious to me during that, that journey that I could not access the fabrication technology that was needed to make the probe people really needed. And so having been in, in biotech before I got, to, uh, got to, uh, to Genalia, I wrote a spec in conjunction with my colleagues at Genalia. They said, I said, you know, look, what do you need? This is lunch conversations. Okay, it should do this and this. It doesn't have to do that and that. And then I took that specification around to technology developers and said, you know, we want, it, we want a thing that does this. Can you make it? And the problem with advanced silicon technology is there are lots of people who could make it, and nearly none of them would be interested in making a few thousand a year. Semiconductor technology is practiced at tens of thousands an hour. It just isn't worth it. Fortunately, I found IMAC, which is this place in Louvain, Belgium, that does pilot scale development and manufacturing. They don't make 10,000 chips an hour. They make, you know, one batch and then try and figure out what it means. And they had this interest in life science applications. And so they worked through, they're very good engineers, they worked through the spec and they said, sure, we can do this 4.2 million euros. Okay. <laughs> I thought, okay. <laughs> So, since I work for HHMI, I just went to my boss and said, boss, I need 4.2 million euros, I'm going to make a really awesome probe. And so he said, well, so this is Jerry Rubin. He is really smart, and, and one of his smartness dimensions is he knows what he knows, and he, does, and he knows what he doesn't, and he's comfortable with that. So his notion was, I have no idea whether this is a useful probe or not, but if you, if it's as important as you say it is, you should be able to find a partner. I said, you're right. If it's as important as I say it is, you should be able to find a partner. Well, it turns out that a really famous scientist no longer with his name, Sidney Brenner, was in the office next door to mine. And even in his 80s, Sidney was not risk averse. <laughs> his notion was just jump off the building. We'll think of something on the way down. And so, and so Sidney said, well, I think this is, you know, sort of a Genalia-like project. And so, he had to go to a meeting at MIT and then came back, you know, two days later and with the news that Christoph Koch had announced that he had left his position at um, Caltech and he was now chief scientist at the Allen Institute and they were going to do a very large scale visual coding recording experiment in mice. That experiment was reported at this symposium, you know, 
400,000 neurons in mouse visual cortex and elsewhere for vision. And so I called up Christoph. So Sydney says, call up Christoph. So I called up Christoph. This is two days after I asked for 4.2 million. And Christoph says, I think I can pay for a third. I don't think I can pay for half. And I said, don't worry, Christoph. One partner is infinitely better than zero partners. <laughs> so it took the rest of a year to get the rest of the money. And it came from the Wellcome Trust in the UK and another charity called the Gatsby Foundation. And so those four charities together put their money together for 4.2 million euros to send to IMEC, not counting any money we spent in our own labs doing testing and, and specifications. And so it was that generosity and that forward look that made it possible, is that if I had taken in 2010, which is when we were doing this, that proposal to NIH, I think there's very little possibility it would have been funded. It was a really big number for a device. And the engineering community had been promising, you know, breakthrough technology for a long time. And that was what it was just structured completely incorrectly. In the, the technology was two engineering master students would make a probe. They would get one to sort of work. They would do a recording. They would publish a paper. They'd both go get jobs and no one ever got any probes. Part of my stipulation when I went around and asked people, can you, will you make this and can you make it, is if you get my money, you must sign as the first stipulation of the contract, we will make them and sell them. <laughs> because the world didn't need another paper, it needed probes. I was an old guy, I didn't need another paper, I had a job. They need, I need, the world needed probes. And so that was, I think it was the mindset, look, we need to find a pathway to develop and distribute probes, not to prove that a technology was possible. And so when now using those probes and utilizing them, do you have any tips for best practice for people who might want to go and use those probes for the first time? Yes, and it's our fault that we haven't done a better job. Is is that the the software installation for data acquisition and data analysis is is outside the typical first year biological graduate students, you know, um, power skill set and so we need to do a better job of teaching we've been offered support from from the NIH Um, the Wellcome Trust has already generated support to to run courses and so I think the, the the situation is is that the use of the technology is quite straightforward I mean you put the probe in and you get data immediately but the whole setup and the intimidation of I have a fragile thing that I don't want to break and it costs 1,200 euros and my boss will hate me if I break it. Um, we have to find better, faster ways to get over that barrier. They're not over, I mean, they are fragile, but they're eminently usable. You know, my postdoc, Susu Chen, spent four and a half years at Genelia and never broke a probe. So the very best hands can just do an amazing job, but even average hands can generate great data with not much use trouble they're not fussy but there is a barrier to entry that we have not done as good a job as we need to in lowering and so the the break risk is that you're surgically implanting them into brains of um, test subjects like mice and and primates and then the shank will break or just in handling during the implant that you know the shank is only 70 microns wide and and 20 20 microns thick just sort of a third of a human hair and it's made from a single crystal silicon and so it is subject to fracture. It, you know, you can handle them and do okay, but I've broken my share of probes. And so, but my hands aren't, aren't as good as most biologists' hands, and so you shouldn't be worried about the fact that I break probes. 
Okay, so you've mentioned that one of the big challenges that are kind of arising in the field of electrophysiology is is that large data um, the data sets that are produced and, and dealing with those data sets. And I think that's something that's common across lots of um, different fields at the moment. Um, you spent a lot of your career uh, fixing problems for people by creating um, these probes and creating technologies when people come to you and say, okay, this is what we need. So from your side of things, if you were speaking to a computational biologist um, and or someone who in, in uh, bioinformatics said saying we need a, a system that can successfully analyze all of this data that we're producing what would it be that you you would ask of them to create for you so so there are many packages to do what's called spike sorting the mathematicians love it because there's no right answer so they can also assert they've succeeded um, but what we need from them is a skeptical mindset to try and understand the reliability of the outcome. Um, have I created such a minimum of fit space that there is a low likelihood that there is a better space or a different space for, for, my, for my spike sort to live? And then to broadcast the uncertainty. The uncertainty is significant and it will not go away. And so you have to make sure that you tell people this is the best we can do with this data and the uncertainty is about this big and so you should make sure that people know that that there isn't a better answer available but this answer is not perfect and you should interpret your science according to that uncertainty fantastic um and so tim at sfn so far what's been your main highlight of the event well i think that that as as we started in our in our personal conversation, I think the data from Dorsau's lab where they recorded in two different parts of the monkey's brain that are quite active when viewing faces. So they're visual areas and they are these things called face patches in that community. And they recorded in one session, in one day, all of the data that went into a paper published two years ago that took two years to accumulate with the prior art. And so it went from two years worth of monkeys sitting in chairs and graduate students lowering probes to a single afternoon with two neural pixels primate probes. That to me is sort of a slope change in data throughput that is rare in science. Um, and so that's the one that impacts me. It, it, was, it was in the hands of, of, of a postdoc that Giannis Hessa and it is just a tour de force in what a new technology can be used for to do a hard experiment or to do an experiment that what it's still a hard experiment because Giannis is really skilled but one day in two years really speaks to me <laughs> so Tim firstly thank you very much for joining me on the podcast well, it's great to be here. I, I hope it was informative and useful to, to, to everyone who listened and uh, look for really interesting things going forward. And thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed. Thanks for listening and goodbye. <laughs>